Mark chapter 4. Many of you have been asking me what version of the Bible I teach from. I teach from the New American Standard. So if you were curious, there you go. I teach from the New American Standard always. We're in Mark chapter 4. We've got a wonderful little text before us today. I love these uh, Jesus stories that we have in the gospel. And uh, I, I use the term story narrowly, meaning historical accounts. I love these little historical accounts that the gospels give us of Jesus. And we get to see him interacting with the people and the lessons they learned. And, you know, the disciples in the gospels, they had to learn them one by one over a period of three years. And we can open up the Bible and we can read the Gospels in an afternoon and see all that the Lord did with them. It's absolutely amazing. So this is a really neat one before us, one of my favorite texts in the Gospels. Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. It says, And on that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Hey, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. And leaving the multitude, they took Jesus along with them, just as he was in the boat. And the other boats are with him as well. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so much that the boat was already filling up. And Jesus himself was in the stern of the boat, asleep on the cushion, or as the King James puts, pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And being aroused, Jesus rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Shh, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you so timid? How is it that you have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Father, this morning, we ask that you would instruct our hearts concerning all that is in this text. That as we've opened up our Bibles, you would open up our minds. That we would receive revelation from you. That you would send your Holy Spirit to teach us. Thank you for this historical account of your son interacting with your beloved ones. And now we just want to interact even today with you. So come God, commune with us in your word. We realize that man does not live by bread alone, but by the every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So come and feed us on your word. For those of us that are in need in various ways, we thank you, Father, that at this moment you know our needs and you know how to meet them. And I'm going to trust you, God, this morning to meet needs. I'm going to trust you by your perfect love to cast out fear. We're going to believe you that you'll remove anxiety this morning. We're going to believe you to build faith in the hearts of men and women here. We're going to believe you to expand your kingdom in our hearts and in our lives now through the teaching of your word. So come and teach us now. In Jesus' name, amen. I've entitled this message, Where is God when I'm confused and overwhelmed? Where is God when I'm confused and overwhelmed? And I took my title from verse 37. You'll recall from just reading it that verse 37 says, And there arose a fierce gale of wind. And in my mind, as I ponder a fierce gale of wind, 
on the Sea of Galilee there, that big lake, and realizing that it was getting to be evening, the sun was going down and darkness was encroaching. As I picture this fierce gale of wind and the waves increasing and the darkness coming, it speaks to me of confusion. Confusion as we so often see it in our lives seems like there's just a wind blowing through and we don't always know which way it's coming from and where it's going. It seems like sometimes the darkness is growing and the compass is spinning and we're just looking for some sort of direction. And then it says there, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. I see here in that historical account a picture of you and I when we get overwhelmed. Can anybody relate? Just that overwhelmed feeling. The wind is blowing. It seems like it's getting dark. The waves are breaking over the boat. We might draw a parallel between the boat and our lives as the Gospels frequently do for us. And the boat is filling up with the waves that are breaking on it. And it's just on the verge of sinking. How many can relate to that confused, overwhelmed, sinking feeling so often in our life? It's been said that there are two things that are sure in life. Death and taxes, you've heard that one. It's not quite accurate. If we're going to speak biblically, there are three things in life that are sure. Death, taxes, and trials. Death, taxes, and trouble. Death, taxes, and tribulations. Those three things are guaranteed in this lifetime. Jesus spoke about taxes. He said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. Bible speaks about death. He says it's appointed for a man to live once and then death. And the Bible speaks about trials and tribulations. Jesus said to his disciples, in this world, you are going to have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. But in this world, you are going to have trouble. First Peter wrote in his epistle, chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you as though it were some strange happening. Don't be surprised at the painful trial among you as though some strange thing were happening to you. The Bible is very clear that we as Christians are going to experience trials and tribulations. In fact, we ought to as Christians begin to expect them And realize that they're going to be normative. They're going to come on a regular basis in our life. In fact, God is going to see to it. And we'll talk about why in just a moment. But as we speak about trials and tribulations and that feeling of anxiety and that feeling of being overwhelmed and confusion, here's what I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about the mess that we so frequently make for ourselves through sinful choices. That's what I'm not talking about. You know what I mean. We make a dumb choice and we reap the whirlwind. The Bible says God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. You sow to the flesh, you're going to reap from the flesh. And so I'm not talking about, man, God was saying do this and we blew it and did this and now we got these problems. Those aren't the trials and tribulations I'm talking about. Though you're going to have those, those aren't really called trials and tribulations, biblically speaking. Those are called consequences. There's a vast difference That's consequences of bad choices. We all experience that too. And God's mercy abounds in those times. Thank you very much, Lord. But I want you to notice in our text that the disciples didn't make a bad decision. This storm wasn't a result of being out of the will of God. 
In fact, it was a result of being smack dab in the middle of the will of God. Jesus said to them in verse 35, Hey guys, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. They had the clear leading of the Lord. They were simply responding in obedience, trying to walk with God, trying to follow God, and here came the storm. I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. Leaving a finger of Mark because we'll be back. First Peter being way toward the back after Hebrews, after James. But before First John and Revelation. First Peter chapter 4. We're going to bounce around from Peter to James to Hebrews and back again. But here's what we're going to discuss right now for a few minutes. Why trials and tribulations why will God ordain why will God orchestrate difficulties in our lives why even when we're doing our best to follow why will he lead us right into the midst of storms so often why does God do that I'm going to give you a couple reasons from the Bible right here why we must experience storms 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 12 verse of all verse 12 Peter writes, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Notice what Peter said. Peter learned the lesson well from Jesus having walked with him for some time, having ministered on his behalf for several years before writing his epistle. He says now to the Christians, don't trip out. Don't be surprised. Trials and tribulations are normal. And they are there for the testing of your faith. We often hear people speak in this language. Oh, God is testing me. What does it mean when God is testing us? The first thing we need to realize about God testing our faith, and that is what he tests is our faith. The first thing we need to realize is that God tests us to prove us, not to cause us to fail. There's a vast difference. God tests us that we might be found sure and steadfast in Him. That our faith might increase in Him working through us. He doesn't test us to try to get us to fail. That's what Satan does. Satan tries to trip us up and tempt us and get us into a place of failure and condemnation. God always wants us to grow. And so any time that we're being tested, that we're following God and trials and tribulations come, It is for the proving of our faith. God never sets you up for failure. And what God is doing is giving you an opportunity to exercise your faith. The Bible declares that each has been given a measure of faith. And so because God has granted you faith, He's going to give you the opportunity to use it. And the best time to use it is in trials and tribulations. When we don't understand, when things don't make sense, when the dots aren't connecting, when it's not lining up, when it's scary, when we feel timid, when we feel confused and overwhelmed, this is the opportunity from God to exercise our faith. The Bible says three times in the New Testament, Romans, Galatians, and in Hebrews, the righteous shall walk by faith and not by sight. And so he's going to give you opportunities. And so recognize when you're following and these trials and tribulations come along, be mindful of what you're saying when you're saying God is testing me. It's not for sin. It's not for failure. It's to build you up. And it's a testing of your faith that you might see that you have some. Isn't that good? He gives you the faith and then he goes, look, you have it. Let me prove to you. And by delivering us through 
Not always from, but through the trial, our faith is built. Secondly, gives us uh, trials for the testing of our faith. Secondly, uh, pop over to James chapter 1. This is before Peter. James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 3, James writes, Knowing that the testing of your faith, as we just spoke of, produces endurance. So the testing of our faith produces endurance, or as it might be translated more literally, steadfastness. That is the outflow of God testing us, bringing trials into our life is for endurance, for steadfastness, to develop patience and trust in us. To be steadfast means to be firm, fixed, settled, and established. It's been said like this. God doesn't allow storms into your life to sink your boat. He allows storms into your life to settle your soul. You see what I'm saying? God doesn't want to sink you. He wants to settle you. God does not want to confound you. He wants to confirm you. God doesn't want to confuse you. He wants to ground you. God doesn't want to weaken you and see you fail. He wants to strengthen and establish you. And so the testing of our faith, as we spoke of, produces endurance. Go to 1 Peter. I told you we're going to bounce around. Keep your finger on James. We'll be right back. 1 Peter again, chapter 5 now. Here's a promise from God. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's a promise. After you have suffered for a little while. Now, a little while is an indeterminable amount of time. (laughs) It's ambiguous in the text. We don't know how long a little while is. One man's little while is another man's long time. We read in the Bible about the trials that some of these people in the Bible went through and there were some long ones. God have mercy. But after you have suffered for a little while, and remember a day is is a thousand years with the Lord, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory will Himself, listen to that, will Himself. He's not going to send a delegate. He's not merely going to send an ambassador. Not just an angel which are ministering spirits unto us. But the God of the universe will himself come to you and he will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Perfect doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect because you suffered. That's for final sanctification. That's after we die. But it means that he will mature you. To confirm you means to establish you and ground you securely. To strengthen means to strengthen and establish means to settle you. You see, we're so often tossed to and fro by the things that happen to us. God's will is that you be steadfast, just anchored, just moving forward. Don't you love when you see people like that? It seems like no matter what comes their way, they're able to say, hey, praise God. I'm going to stay the course. I'm going to keep following the Lord. That's because they've been through it before. They've been through the trials. They believe the Bible and God has established them, set them upon the firm rock. They've experienced it. There can be no understanding concerning the theology of suffering until you've gone through the activity of suffering. Martin Luther said this, Affliction is the best book in my library. Can you imagine the library Martin Luther? It must have been just immense. 
And he said, the best book in my library is Suffering That Comes From God. He's learned more through suffering than he did anything he ever read. And so I'm praying this morning that as we're teaching about trials and tribulations, that God would bring some into your life this week to make application of the Word of God, to give you an opportunity to have your faith tested and exercised that He might develop in you endurance and steadfastness. Now, for the third reason He brings trials into our lives, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Should be just a page or two away. Toward Genesis a little bit. Hebrews chapter 12. An amazing chapter. Should be really familiar with it as you're if you're a Christian, it'll comfort you at all times. Verse 7. Hebrews 12, 7. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? It is for discipline that you endure. So the testing of our faith is a reason for trials. The testing produces endurance. And the endurance produces discipline. Or said differently, there is a work of disciplining that the Father does in our life through trials and tribulations and suffering that He sovereignly brings to us. God deals with us as sons. Whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, the Bible says. And every son whom He receives, He scourges. And if God is not disciplining you, then you are an illegitimate son. You're not born again. Isn't that a wonderful promise? God disciplines those whom He loves. And the reason He does it is to refine us. We often think of discipline as a slap on the hand, right? Our kids, they reach or they grab for something and we're disciplining you. That's not discipline in the biblical sense. Discipline in the biblical sense is building character into us. It's more than a slap on the hand. It's fortifying the qualities of God into our heart. It's purging fleshliness out of us, worldliness, evil desires, selfishness. You see, the discipline of God always accomplishes a deep work in our character. It's more than a slap on the hand. It's an accomplishing of work in our character, a refining work. Here's what it says in verse 10. Speaking of our earthly fathers first, it says, For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. In other words, they didn't really have it all together, our earthly fathers. Some of them really blew it with regards to discipline. Some of them did okay. But they did what seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. God disciplines us not so He could just be this mean father, but for our good that in order that we may share in His holiness, that we may taste of the goodness of God and the character of God, the attributes of God, that we might have God-likeness. When God disciplines us, He conforms us into the image of His Son. We become less like us, less like this world, and more like Him. Amen? And then it says in verse 12, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. It's a bummer. It's sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. Isn't that the sweetest sounding thing you ever heard? The peaceful fruit of righteousness. How do we get that? By being trained from discipline. Therefore, it follows that when trials and tribulations come into our life, we ought to say, okay, God, teach me now. Instruct me in this. God, show me. 
I want to learn. I want to be trained by this. This is why this is such an important biblical doctrine. It's often ignored by a segment of the church that wants to ignore it, that preaches just a health and wealth gospel, that come to Jesus and you're going to get the car you want and the wife you want and you're never going to be sick and you're never going to be sad. The Bible does not teach that anywhere. Not even close. That is such a perversion of the Word of God. The Bible says, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. He has overcome the world. And greater is He who is in you than He who is in the world. And yes, there's going to be problems, but God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond that which you are able to endure. But with the temptation, will provide the way out also. And if you come to God and say, God, teach me now, then He is faithful to teach you and it will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God is so much better than the false teachers claim Him to be. The fourth reason why God allows trials into our lives is back in James. James, once again, James chapter 1, verse 4 now. We've already alluded to it, but we'll read it. James 4, or James 1, verse 4. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. You see that? The end result of trials and tribulations is maturity in our walk with the Lord. Let endurance have its perfect or complete or full result. In other words, go all the way through it. Walk the mile with God. Americans, we we so want to be comfortable, I'm just like you. I don't want to be disciplined. I don't want to go through hard things. I want to have all the money in the bank and all the ducks in the row. I want to just be comfortable. But it says no. No. Let the suffering, let the trial have its full result. And in the end, it will yield in you maturity. That is what Martin Luther was saying when he said, the greatest book in my library is affliction. He learned more by walking through trials with God than anything he ever read. And so it follows logically from James 1.4 that until we've really experienced some trials and tribulations, we really haven't come to maturity in Christ. That's why I am praying for you and me to experience some. As weird as that sounds. Because I long, as you long, for us to be a mature body. To be growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. And if God is going to grow us in the grace and the knowledge, He's going to allow some trials our way. Individually and congregationally. As a community, as a coastline. Some spiritual battles. Some ones that manifest itself in the physical realm. Some apparent loss. Some heartache. Some ambiguity, some uncertainty, some confusion, some overwhelmingness that he might yield in us maturity. And so storms, they test our faith. They produce in us endurance. They're for our discipline, our good. They yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness and they yield maturity. They're necessary for our growth. Storms are vehicles by which we learn about God. And for that reason we are able to now read with full faith and confidence James 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Knowing what they're for now, can't we say amen to that? If you read that without that context, you're kind of like, whatever, dude, don't be all hyper-spiritual on me. And then you read about the goodness of God through trials, and when James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, you go, yeah, it's totally joy. And when Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 
three or something. He said, uh, we exult in tribulations or we enjoice in tribulation. Meaning when hard stuff comes our way, the Christian is able to say, yes, this rules. This is rad. This is great. Right on. Why? Listen, be very careful. We don't rejoice in the thing that's happening per se. Because it's usually a bad, a bad thing. You know, it's usually, a, it's a bummer. We don't rejoice in evil. Love does not rejoice in evil. But we rejoice in the faithfulness of God in the end result. That's what we rejoice in. The circumstance is a total bummer. It's a heartache. It's a heartbreak. I never thought this would happen to me in my life. This is a total drag. We don't rejoice in the circumstance. We rejoice in the God who is in control and faithful to work through it. Amen? That is why we consider all joy, my brethren, when we encounter various trials. It requires sometimes some discernment to know that which is from God and that which is from not. That which is not. Because as I said before, we're not speaking about consequences. And there's also something that's just called daily life. Daily life. For example, this afternoon, uh, Pastor G and I, for his birthday, are going to head up to Pismo. And we're going to take dirt bikes. We're going to ride around in the dunes. And by the nature of the guys that we are, we're going to take risks. That's just who we are. We love danger. And it's not fun unless it's dangerous in my mind. And so we're going to go, and I'm sorry, mom and wife. Just pray. My mom and my wife are giving me the evil eye. So we're going to go, and we're going to be dangerous, and we're going to have a ton of fun. If we get hurt, if we break a leg or, or something like that, here's what we're not going to say. Oh, it was the Lord. Oh, God did it. God broke my leg. No, not in that instance. That was Pastor G and Pastor B being dumb. That was normal life. There's a difference. It takes a little bit of discernment. Yes, there are times where God allows tragedy that may involve injury to accomplish His work. But if you were being dumb, it was probably you and not God. And then, all is not lost. That's where you fall back on Romans 8.28. That God works all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes it takes a little bit of discernment to know what's from God and what was your own mess. I often see people living a rebellious lifestyle with regards to God, just doing whatever they want to do. And then when tragedy strikes, they blame God. Wait a minute, you just ignored God for several years and now that tragedy strikes, you're going to blame it on Him? That's not logical, that's not right, that's not biblical. You made this mess. But God can restore the years that the locust has eaten. God exchanges beauty for ashes. God can work all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. He can exchange a garment of praise for sorrow. But it takes a little bit of discernment. So if you're experiencing trials and tribulations in your life currently and you're having a hard time telling, Lord, is this because of my sin? Or is this just kind of something dumb I did? Or is it you and your sovereignty wanting to teach me? All you need to do is ask Him. Just ask God. God, which one is this? Because God's not a liar. He's going to tell you. And listen to me, saints. God is able to speak to you. God is able to speak to His people. He's able to speak through His Word. He's able to speak through others and he's able to speak to you in the still small voice. He's able to speak prophetically to you. So just ask him, God, which is this? And now, 
How do I respond? Go back to Mark chapter 4 as we see this begin to pan out a little bit more. Mark chapter 4, in verse 35, we already said that we know that this is a trial that sovereignly comes from the hand of God because it was God himself, Jesus Christ, who told them to get in the boat, correct? Okay, so this is God's doing entirely. God said, get in the boat knowing that the storm was coming. Who made the storm? Jesus. Even my son knows this. My son is three and a half. Every time we see something, I say, who made that? He says, Jesus. Who made the storm? Wow, my son is more on fire than you guys. Verse 35, we know that already. Jesus said, let us get in the boat and go to the other side. So they were following in obedience. But I want you to be careful to read the word of God here. I want you to make careful note of the every word in the phrase that Jesus gave us. Let us go to the boat and... Let us go in the boat and... Go to the other side. Go to the, it's so important to read the Word of God carefully. Every single word is sovereignly placed by the Holy Spirit and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness and correcting. Every word is important. Jesus said, let's get in the boat and let's go to the other side. Why is that important? Because He didn't say, let's get in the boat and go out in the middle and drown. He said, let's go to the other side. And so that should have settled it for the disciples. When the storm came... They should have, in a perfect walk with the Lord, been able to say, hey man, don't trip out, Peter. Don't trip out, James. Jesus said, let's go to the other side. He's going to get us to the other side. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of this. He's going to deliver us to the other side. There's no reason to trip out here. He didn't say get in the boat and go out and drown. And it says in the next chapter, in verse 1, and they came to the other side. Just an understatement. And they came to the other side. Encompassed in that phrase there is all of the faithfulness of God toward his people. And they came to the other side. God was faithful to get them to the place where he wanted them to be. God was faithful to see them through, even through the confusion, even through the darkness, even through the waves breaking over the boat. God has been faithful to Israel for millennium. God has been faithful to Israel for millennia. God made promises to Israel that were amazing. And even when Israel was faithless, God was faithful. Even when they ceased to believe and they turned away, God made good on his promise. Look what Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand and out of the Father's hand. Listen, if you're born again, here's what Jesus said to you on that day. All right, let's go the other side. The other side being heaven, the promise, eternal life, the kingdom. He said, let's go to the other side. He is faithful to get us to the other side. He said that we're in his hand, in the Father's hand as well, and nobody can snatch us out. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Hence also he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's able to save forever. He's able to see you all the way through to the very end because he is seated at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for us. 
At the moment you're going through trials and tribulations, Jesus Christ himself is interceding for you. Now, do the prayers of Jesus fail? No, they don't fail. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect or complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That is until his coming for the church or you go to see him face to face. Paul the Apostle wrote, I am confident of this, that God is going to complete the work that he began in you. So saints, don't give up. Don't give in. I know it's been a long time. I know it's overwhelming. I know it's confusing. I know it's difficult, but don't give up. God is faithful and he has a purpose in it. And so you might say, okay, I understand, Britt, that he's going to get us to the other side. I understand from the Bible that we see his absolute faithfulness. I've got a grip on that. But I need some strength for today. I need some wisdom for today, some insight for the now. How do I respond? What do I do? Well, first realize that sometimes you need to be free from blame. You need not to blame yourself. The enemy always wants to come in with condemnation. He always wants you feeling bad about yourself. He always wants you to blame yourself and be downcast. Sometimes you need to just understand that this came unexpectedly by the hand of God. There was nothing I could do to foresee it. Maybe it's affecting your family, your friends, your work, and you've got this sense of guilt. Guilt is never from God. It is never from God. When you are born again, guilt is never from the Lord. That's always from the enemy. It came unexpectedly. The Sea of Galilee where this took place is 628 feet below sea level. And it's surrounded by these deep ravines or valleys, especially coming from the north where Mount Hermon is. And Mount Hermon is a much colder region up there. And at the Sea of Galilee, there's a thermal that develops right over it. And 628 feet below sea level, when that thermal begins to lift, it just sucks the wind from the north right into the sea. And here comes this cold wind being funneled, being just speeded down these ravines right into the Sea of Galilee. These guys were trained fishermen. They knew how to spot a storm, but there were certain times where there was nothing they could do to see it coming. It just came. You guys are smart. Sometimes you see a storm. The prudent sees evil and hides himself, but the naive goes on and they suffer folly for it, the book of Proverbs says. But other times, it just came upon you. There's nothing you could do. Be free from guilt today. Accept the sovereignty of God that nothing has come upon you except for that which has passed through the lens of his sovereignty. And instead of just tripping out on where you are, ask, where is God? Where is God when I feel confused and overwhelmed? Where is God? He's in verse 38. It says in verse 38, and he himself was in the stern asleep on the pillow. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. 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 You just did this big buildup. Don't be afraid. God is there. God is faithful. God is going to bring the storm. And when he brings the storm, there he is sleeping in the boat. Jesus was asleep in the boat. That's what the Bible says. He was asleep and it says on a cushion in the New American Standard. I think in the NIV it says that too. But in the New King James, I like it. It says he's on a pillow. He's in the boat and he's on a pillow. What does that mean? Oh, it means that you just can't trust God. There's just going to be certain times where he's just going to ignore you. And even God needs to rest. I mean, he rested on the seventh day, the Sabbath and everything. No, 
No, no, no, no, no, no, no, no, no. That's not what it means. Jesus Christ in his humanity was tired. Right? When Jesus came as a man, he slept, he ate, he drank, he laughed. He did things that humans do. The Bible says in Hebrews, he touched with a feeling of our infirmities. That was his human nature. But the picture of God, of Jesus sleeping in the storm, is that God is at absolute peace when we're freaking out. That's what it means. The disciples were freaking out and God was just kind of kicking back. He was in absolute perfect peace. No stress, no worry, no concern, no panicking. Jesus is always at peace. Jesus is always at peace. Why is Jesus always at peace? He's the Prince of Peace, Pastor G said. He's the Prince of Peace. Colossians chapter 2. Therefore, let no... Ooh, that's not the right verse. Interesting. Colossians... <laughs> well, I'll just tell you what it says. In Colossians chapter 2, the right verse says this. All things were created by Jesus. All things were created for Him. And there is nothing that exists apart from Him. That He holds all things together. So the Bible declares concerning Jesus and His deity that he's the creator of all things and that he is the sustainer of all things and he is the goal of all things. All things were created by him and for him and apart from him, nothing exists. People trip out. I mean, more rightly, scientists trip out. They try to figure out the atom, right? Smart people go, yep, that's right. They try to figure out the atom because you've got these positive and negative little things and they're all flying around together and by the laws of science, they should burst apart, right? You learned this in Carpi. They should fly apart. Mr. Ingstrom taught you this. Mr. Ingstrom taught you this. They should fly apart. But the scientists being baffled say, well, there's something in the universe that we're going to go ahead and call atomic glue that holds everything together because everything's made up of atoms, right? Is this way over your head? Everything is made up of atoms. You're just a, a bunch of atoms. Everything, this is atoms. It's all atoms put together. But by scientific law, it should all fly apart. But somehow it all stays together and the scientists go, um, 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 atomic glue. (laughs) Whatever. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. It says in the Bible, there in Colossians, I'm sorry, it was chapter 1, and in him all things hold together. Colossians 1.17. My bad, it was 1. Colossians 1.17. And in him all things hold together. He is the atomic glue, so to speak. He is holding all things in his hands. He does not stress because he's in absolute rest, because he's in total control. He is the prince of peace because there's nothing to him that is unknown. He's the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. He saw it before it ever happened and he brought it to pass. And so Jesus was asleep in the boat. John chapter 14, verse 27. Peace I leave with you, Jesus speaking. My peace. Look at that. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Peace I leave with you. And he said, my peace. Jesus gives the Christian his peace. Why is that profound? Because his peace is perfect. It's not like the peace of the world. It is perfect. His peace, meaning absolute control that he has, that peace he ministers to our heart. So, God is there. 
God is faithful. God is in control. And yet sometimes it just doesn't feel like it, does it? Would anybody confess with me this morning that you know these things in your mind, you believe them to be true in the depth of your heart, but sometimes it just doesn't feel that way? Well, that's why we're called to walk by faith and not by sight. And so we've got to respond in faith. We've got to be able to say like Abraham said, all the circumstances are against me. It's not looking good. God promised him a son when he was 75. And now he's almost 100 years old and the promised son hasn't come yet. Sarah's over 90. All the circumstances were against him. But God was faithful and he brought about the promise. You see, when Abraham began to look at the circumstances, he started to freak out. But when we look at the character of God, then we have that peace. And so, though it may not seem like God is with us, we need to do a couple things to get us through the storm. Here's what we do in the storm. Take note of these. Three things to do in the storm. Number one, get a grip. Number two, give a call. And number three, don't be dumb. Very biblical. Three things to do in the storm. Number one, get a grip. Number two, give a call. Number three, don't be dumb. For those of you who are more mature than myself, I'll phrase it to you differently. Three things to do in the storm. Number one, reflect upon the character of God. (laughs) Number two, pray fervently and without ceasing. And number three, be careful to walk in obedience. Say it how you want to say it. Get a grip, give God a call, and don't be dumb. We're going to go with that one. Point number one, get a grip. It means to reflect upon the character of God. What do we do in the midst of trials and tribulations when we believe God's promises, but it doesn't seem as though He's there and we're having to walk by faith? We reflect upon the character of God, that He is at absolute peace. Now look what it says in verse 38 again. And he himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Uh Uh-oh, there's a problem. There's a theological, doctrinal problem in the life of the disciples. They begin to question whether or not God cares. That was the problem. Listen, if you got that problem, then you're going to freak out. You simply need to receive by faith and believe because the Word of God says it, that God cares. The Bible says that He knows when a sparrow falls and He cares. And how much more important are you than a sparrow? The Bible says that He has numbered the hairs upon your head. The Bible says that His thoughts toward you are more than every speck of sand on every beach in the world. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, don't be anxious because He cares for you. Cast all your anxieties upon Him because He cares for you. So we've got to reflect upon the character of God that He is a caring and loving Father. Isaiah chapter 41. Let's go there. Keep your finger in Mark. Go to Isaiah. We're going to look at some really neat passages in Isaiah right now. Isaiah, of course, is back toward Genesis. If you get to Jeremiah or the book of Psalms, you've gone too far. If you're in Ezekiel, it's not far enough. I'm sorry, if you're in Jeremiah, you're still not far enough. I'm just making it up as I turn my Bible here. Isaiah chapter 41. Page 1011. Reflecting upon the character of God. 
This verse has always been a great source of strength in times of ambiguity for me. Isaiah 41, verse 10. The Lord speaking. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, because I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Did you notice how many times in that verse God said I? Here's the problem with people. We get in tribulation and we think I. We don't think about him, we think me. Me, 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 I got this problem, I got that problem, me and me and I feel this way, me, 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 me. And what God wants to do is draw your attention to him. So he says, stop saying I, let me say I for a minute. Do not fear, I am with you. Don't anxiously look about, for I am your God. I will surely strengthen you. Surely I'm going to help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Verse 11, Behold, all those who are angered at you will be shamed and dishonored. Those who contend with you will be as nothing and will perish. You will seek those who quarrel with you, but will not find them. Those who war with you will be as nothing and non-existent. Now that verse, verse 11 and 12, God made that promise to Israel concerning some specific nations that would come against them. But the concept holds true for all of God's people, that He is a defender on their behalf. And now in verse 13, For I am the Lord your God, who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. I am the Lord your God, who upholds your right hand. Did you notice what he said there? He said, I'm the Lord your God, I uphold your right hand. And did you notice before in verse 10, he said, I hold you with my righteous right hand? Dominic, stand up, bro. This is our worship leader. Okay, I'm going to be God. You be someone in trouble. I'm going to uphold you with my righteous right hand. But what hand am I going to hold? What did it say in there? Verse 13. I'm going to hold your right hand. Now, if God is going to lead you by holding your right hand, he's going to lead you like this. He's going to look you right in the eye and he's going to walk you through tribulation like this. This is how God walks us through tribulation. When it says follow the Lord, this is what it means. God fixing his gaze upon us and us fixing our gaze upon him and he walks us through it with his hand in ours, that righteous right hand. That's our God. That's our Lord. That's our Savior. Now here's something very important. It doesn't matter with regards to your character. It's got to do about, it's got to do with God's character, not your character. Who's got a new American standard right here? My wife. I want you to notice in verse... 14, look what the Lord says. Isaiah 41, 14. Do not fear, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. Wait a minute. God just called His chosen people Israel a worm. They were a worm. They were just like a wiggly worm. They were always freaking out and wiggling around. They were just vile in the sight of God. They were just sinners. And God says all these wonderful things. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to hold your hand. I'm going to help you through it, you little worm. God's just being honest. He's letting us know it doesn't depend upon your character. As far as your character goes, you're just a wiggling worm there on the earth. But I am God. That's why he draws his attention away from us and he puts it on him. Another wonderful passage is Isaiah 57. Go to Isaiah 57. Isaiah 57, this one is very comforting, starting in verse 14. 
And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstacle out of the way of my people. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Are you feeling humbled and broken today? God himself declares that he is enthroned and dwells in a high and holy place, but at the same time, he is absolutely with you. What an amazing God we have, that he's high and exalted and he humbled himself to be with us. Who are we that God would be mindful of us and yet he is so mindful? And now for the piece de resistance, Isaiah chapter 49, maybe my favorite verse in the entire Bible. Isaiah 49, starting in verse 14. Before you read it, know that God made this promise here specifically to Israel for a certain moment in time, but it holds true as being God's heart for his people at all times. So read this as God's saying it to you. First, we're going to speak to God. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. That's how we feel sometimes. I'm in the midst of the trial and tribulation. I don't see God anywhere. And the Lord responds in verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? The obvious answer to that is it's not likely. No, it's ridiculous to think that a woman would forget about her child while she, he's nursing. That's ridiculous. The love of the mother just doesn't allow for that. And yet God says, even these may forget but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. What is that referring to? The death of Jesus Christ upon the cross prophesied hundreds of years in advance. God says, how can I possibly forget you? I'm scarred from my love for you. I was pierced through for your transgressions. I will forever bear the marks of your iniquity. How can I possibly forget you? My love is written on the very flesh that my son was manifest in. And it is second coming, the Bible says, that all the world that is still alive at that time will see his wounds and will repent. Even a mom might forget about her baby, but I am much more than a mom. I will never forget about you. I have inscribed you upon the palms of my hand. Isn't our God a wonderful God? Absolutely amazing. Back to the book of Mark as we finish now. So we get a grip when we reflect upon the character of God. It brings peace into our life as we let that truth dwell in us. And so now... We want to read as if the Lord was saying it to us with regards to our current troubles in verse 40 of Mark 4. And he said to them, Why are you so timid? Why are you so afraid? How is it possible that you have no faith? Jesus said to them, So knowing all that you know about me now, reading what we just read, why are you afraid again? (laughs) How is it that you have no faith? Warren Wearsby had a wonderful thing to say about this passage. He said regarding the fact that the disciples asked Jesus, don't you care? We're drowning. He wrote this, of course he cares. He arose and he rebuked the storm and immediately there was a great calm. But Jesus did not stop with the calming of the elements. 
For the greatest danger was not the wind or the waves. It was the unbelief in the hearts of the disciples. Our greatest problems are within us, not around us. There it is, saints. There it is. Our greatest problems are within us, not around us. If you're reflecting upon the character of God and you're walking with God, circumstances come what may, you're going to be just fine. The problem is with our faith. Difficult thing about faith is it is the assurance of things not seen. It's believing without seeing. It's trusting without requiring proof or evidence. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we don't see. Listen, there's no way around faith. The Bible declares that we must have it. And the Bible declares that God gives it to us, but then we must walk in it. The greatest danger is not around us, it's in us. It's a lack of faith. All things are possible with Christ Jesus. Number two, we talked about getting a grip and now give a call. It's very simple. Call Jesus first. Pray fervently. How many would confess with me this morning that we call somebody else first? Isn't that weird? Isn't that stupid? (laughs) We could call God, the God of the universe, who is in absolute control, and we always call someone else first. I run to my wife or my mama or someone else. Help me. Hey, God bless them. They're great, and they would do anything for me, but they're not God. Why not go to God? Go to God first. I'm just going to read to you Philippians. You can go there if you want, but I'll read it. I'm going to go there quicker than you. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That means when you're tripping out and you're scared, just tell God about it. Just pray. Just go, God, here's the situation and here's how I feel. And then it says, with thanksgiving. That's a key there. That is a key. That is a key. Praise and thanksgiving always defeats anxiety. We got to come before the Lord and say, Lord, stuff doesn't make sense. Stuff is scary. I'm feeling overwhelmed, but bless your name. Forever you are faithful. You are wonderful and worthy to be praised. You're a great and beautiful and awesome God. It's reflecting upon the character of God through prayer. It's immediately going to bring a change. And it says in verse 7 of Philippians 4, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There's a promise. If we're anxious and we pray and we let God know and we give Him thanks, then the peace of God, which surpasses comprehension, will come upon us. And it will guard our hearts from being overwhelmed and our minds from being confused. Isn't that amazing promise of God? Just count his promises to be true. Just stand firm on that promise this week. And now the last one, don't be dumb or be careful to walk in obedience. It says back in Mark chapter 4, verse 41, and they became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Do you know what that was? It was the fear of God. The Bible says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. I'd like to challenge you this week to go through the book of Proverbs and read every time it says something concerning the fear of God. There are multiple, sundry and various promises concerning the person who fears God. What does it mean to fear God? In one sense, it means what we all want it to mean. To go, oh God, he's gnarly. I revere him. I respect him. In another sense, it means to be terrified of him. 
and that he is the righteous and holy and completely other and indescribable God. And the disciples, when they saw Jesus for who he was, they were afraid. And it says in the book of Proverbs that the beginning of, the, of wisdom is a fear of the Lord. This is when the disciples began to get smart. We've seen a lot in the book of Mark thus far. They were dumb until now. This is when they began to get smart, is when they began to fear God. And so don't be dumb. Fear the Lord. And what does it mean very succinctly to fear the Lord? It means to make the right decisions. That's it. It means to make the right decisions. Here's what I see people do all the time. They believe that God is testing them. They believe they're in a trial. And so they begin to compromise. They want to take shortcuts and they don't adhere to the precepts and the commandments and the warnings of God. The most important thing that we can do in a trial is obey God. He's leading us. He's wanting to teach us for us to learn. We've got to walk in obedience now. And I just got news for you. Whenever we are in a trial, obedience is going to be hard. It's a trial. (laughs) The obedience is going to be hard. In other words, there's going to be an easier way out. You'll be able to justify something in your worldly wisdom. You'll be able to say, well, why not just do this? Well, hey, why not just do it God's way? That is the most important thing to remember when you're in trials and tribulations. And our last verse from Peter says this. More, yep, thank you. Therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator by doing what is right. There it is. If you're suffering according to the will of God, entrust your souls to him. That word was an accounting term. It means to earn interest. You put money in the bank, you entrust it, you get interest back. Entrust your soul to God, being ready to see the return in interest. How? By obeying now. Don't compromise. Don't be dumb. Don't give up. Walk in obedience. Persevere and you will see the faithfulness of God and the goodness of God in the land of the living. Amen? Amen. Lord, you are so good. Your word is so vital for us today. It is so profound, so applicable, so meaningful to our lives. Lord, I just pray that this week in our lives you would make application. You would give us opportunities to have our faith developed, to exercise our faith, and just help us to remember these things. Let the word of God dwell richly in us now. Let us be doers of the word and not merely hearers. Strengthen those who are overwhelmed by circumstances, who are confused. Let the peace of God rest upon them this day, Lord. I just intercede for those who are just feeling so lost and confounded that you would strengthen them with the truth of who you are, with your amazing love, with your unfailing power, with your perfect faithfulness. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Nothing. In Jesus' name, amen.